I'm Sal Palantonio of ESPN, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Hello, I'm Matt O'Donnell. If it is coming from Sal Palantonio, you know it is solid. Sal Pal, as he's known, has covered the Eagles, the NFL, and 25 Super Bowls for ESPN. He is a former Inquirer reporter. He has written books on the NFL and politics. He hosts the TV show NFL Matchup, and he has been a great friend to 6ABC Action News for many years. I'm proud to say Sal Pal under the Disney umbrella is a colleague of mine. He is a pillar of grace and journalistic essence when it comes to being a TV broadcaster. Sal invited me to NFL Films in South Jersey, where he puts together his X's and O's show to talk about the Eagles and his latest book, Philly Special, the inside story of how the Philadelphia Eagles won their first Super Bowl championship. ESPN Sal Palantonio on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Here with Sal Palantonio, Sal Pal at NFL Films in New Jersey. Never been here before. It's almost like a church wandering through these hallways, isn't it? I do call it the church of football. You know, I think Lambeau Field is the cathedral of football in the United States. But this is definitely the first church of football. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working here for two decades. And it's a really cool, relaxed atmosphere, you know, founded by Steve Sable and his father, Ed. And the people who work here are really artistic and passionate and interested in football as it relates to the entire cultural experience of the NFL uh, in the United States, and it's interesting, Matt, because this is the 100th anniversary of the NFL uh, com- upcoming season, so uh, they're doing a lot of work in these hallways right now to get ready for the 100th season. We've been trying to get together for this, and the Eagles kept getting in the way, <laughs> and you're a busy guy, and you managed during the off season after the Super Bowl win to write a book called The Philly Special, which we're going to talk about, uh, but I think it's fair to say, Sal, that Amongst people who are not directly employed by the Eagles, you spent more time with them than anyone else during that season, and then afterwards, of course, and before. Well, you know, I've covered them for 25 years, but during that Super Bowl year, I was with them round the clock, sort of embedded, as we like to say. So uh, I spent a lot of time not only with the players and the coaches, but just interacting with fans, Matt. It's, you know, if you're going to cover a football team, if you're going to cover any team, In this town, you have to know what the fans are thinking and feeling. And that was such an integral part of the book, of writing the book. You know, when you do something for 25 years like that, there's a lot of people who have to support you and make sacrifices along the way, not only family but friends and and, and Eagles fans who are just all the time asking me about the status of the team. And so I really wanted to write a book for them, the definitive book about how this team put together an improbable win, a Super Bowl win in a probable championship season. One question just to start right off. Would the Eagles have won the Super Bowl that year with Carson Wentz as the quarterback throughout the entire season and the playoffs? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. I think the answer to that question is no. I think the, the strange, improbable amalgam of events that happened happened for a reason uh i don't know fate whatever it is brought nick Foles to the philadelphia eagles in that particular circumstance there was a certain magic touch to the right arm of nick Foles. 
especially in the NFC Championship game, especially in the Super Bowl. The one example that I'll come up with is that touchdown pass to Corey Clement in the back of the end zone against the Patriots. I don't think Donovan McNabb could ever make that throw. I'm not sure that Carson Wentz could make that throw. I'm not sure that Nick Foles, if he tried 200 times in a row, could make that throw. That throw had beautiful touch, great accuracy. It was literally like it was placed in Corey Clement's hands in the back of the end zone from divine intervention. And that's special that I don't think anybody could have duplicated. So I think the answer to that is no. That's what I probably would have imagined you saying, but not publicly, but I know you're a straight shooter. Uh, I guess some people might be surprised to hear that from you. I've said it, you know, in conversations with people, but you're the first person in any kind of public setting that's asked me, and I do believe it. I think they wouldn't have won the Super Bowl if Carson Wentz wasn't on that team. Oh, sure. Sure. He authored a nine-game winning streak and was playing at an MVP level. Nick Foles couldn't have done that. And I don't think Carson Wentz could have done what Nick Foles did. They're two separate but equal entities uh, and beautiful in their own way. And Philly fans have been super lucky and blessed to have both of them. And going forward, Carson Wentz, if he stays healthy, I think in the next five to seven years, he'll win two more Super Bowl championships. I like to hear that. Um, <laughs> Philly special chronicling the 2017 to 18 season, and you go game by game because again, you were with the team constantly. You had so many things that were happening outside of the games and during the games, and it's easy to forget. But you remind people in the book how wobbly the season was. It was not an arc that went straight up into the sky. It definitely wasn't. The Eagles got lucky in a lot of different circumstances. They were unlucky. But the way they responded, the resilience that they had, the brotherhood that they had, the, f- the friendship in that locker room uh, was, enabled them to forge the kind of bonds that allowed luck to take place and for them to take advantage of luck. So uh, That's such a big part of any championship. Ab- absolutely. Any sport. And absolutely. There's no question about that, especially in a football season – a football season is really broken down into four quarters, each 16-game season. You're different in the first quarter than you are in the fourth quarter of the season. Uh, that's always been true. That's the way coaches coach. They look at their roster and say, okay, we can win these four games with these guys. But you lose players. The Eagles lost their left tackle. They lost their starting middle linebacker. They lost their best two special teams players, Darren Sproles and Chris Maragos. They lost – their MVP caliber quarterback and still won. They wouldn't have won if Carson Wentz didn't give him a nine-game winning streak and give him the advantage of home field advantage. You call Doug Peterson the greatest gambler in the history of Super Bowl coaches, all because of the Philly special, the, the title of the book. What was your reaction when you saw that play happen in the Super Bowl? I jumped right out of my chair just like everybody else. And I was sitting in the auxiliary press box. I jumped literally out of my chair, which is, of course, taboo. (laughs) I mean, I'm in the auxiliary press box with 4,000 of my closest media friends, 
And I'm like, oh, my God, did you see that? I'm grabbing Steve Levy. <laughs> I'm grabbing my producer. I'm saying, oh, what a play. Because, you know, now the play, Philly Special, is emblazoned in our memories forever. But at the time it happened, it was totally fresh. Really, there wasn't even an inkling in our memory banks that other teams had run this. And it wasn't until I started to really discover the DNA of the play that I discovered just how much it was being used in college and elsewhere, but had never been tried successfully, especially in a Super Bowl as an end zone play on a fourth down. I don't want to give too much away about the book, but you talk, you go into detail about the Philly special, its origins in South Carolina, and also how the team was so nervous about the Patriots stealing plays that they practiced it in a ballroom of a hotel. They did the night before at U.S. Bank Stadium, right before the game at U.S. Bank Stadium, you have what's called a walkthrough mm-hmm. of the Super Bowl plays. And Doug Peterson said to Frank Reich, I want you to make up the plays. And Frank Reich, the offensive coordinator, former offensive coordinator, was like, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, make up anything, just pull out anything from training camp. Because, you know, the Patriots' lure was soiled by this story that they had filmed the St. Louis Rams practice at the Super Bowl about a decade before that, two decades before that. And so it was still very much fresh in everybody's minds. You don't go to the stadium. And then when they got there, there was this guy up in the stands, Matt. Mystery man. Mystery man up in the stands. And Doug Peterson sees him. The coaches see him. They send Big Dom, the security guard, VP for security of the Eagles, up in the stands chasing after him. The guy disappears in a tunnel, and they never find him. So it was good that they practiced that behind closed doors, <laughs> windows, and everything there's, else. There's no truth to the rumor that that guy had a hoodie or, or cut off <laughs> sleeves, okay? I just want to make that clear. Turnaround point of the season, unquestioned in your mind, the Malcolm Jenkins speech in the locker room after the Carson Wentz in- injury before they went to face the media and talk after the game. Yeah, and I talked to Malcolm Jenkins at length about it, and he said to me, you know, we, we heard from Doug Peterson, but what we really needed was we needed, like, one theme going forward. And I wanted to set that theme. He said, before the locker room opened and the media came pouring in, I wanted to speak to one voice, and I wanted to be that voice. And I recreated from a tape recording the entire speech I can't t- say it on this sh- on this podcast because it's f- laced with profanities. <laughs> I'm sure it is. But I included the profanities in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, football players curse. Coaches curse. They have been since I've been covering the team and time in memoriam. And I took all of the curses out except in that speech. I even took the curses out of Jason Kelsey's speech at the art museum. But I wanted people to really hear the profanity and the passion in real time. I wanted to really keep it real for Philly fans. So the full, unedited speech is in that book. One more thing about the Philly special. Uh, We're here at NFL Films, and possibly one of the most famous recent NFL Films clips is Nick Foles going up to Coach Peterson before they're going to run the play and asking him if he wants to run Philly Philly. 
And I've watched it. How many times have you watched that, maybe? 25. 100,000 <laughs> for me. Okay. So as Foles was about to head back out onto the field, after he said, you want to do Philly Philly, and coach said yes, Peterson said, hold on, hold on, hold on, and then said, here we go, and Foles left. You want Philly Philly? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Here we go. Did he have a moment of reservation where you almost said, nah, let's not do it? No, I think the hold on, hold on, hold on was instructions to other coaches that were talking in okay. his ear. Okay. Like, hey, please hold. We're about to run the most famous play in Super Bowl history. Okay, okay. So he was certain the whole way through. Yes. They wanted to run this thing. Yeah. No, once um, Foles mentioned it, uh, Peterson was all go. Okay. Did the Patriots underestimate the Eagles? Absolutely. Why would you bench Malcolm Butler? <laughs> that is... was the ultimate hubris of Bill Belichick. Oh, we can beat the pa- we can beat excuse me the Eagles without Malcolm Butler. Was that part of the reason why he did that? He's like, hey, watch this. No, I'm do I don't one, know what the one reason. One arm behind my back. I don't know what the reason was, but Malcolm. He would have he would have picked up that play. Some believe. That, some special. believe that he would have. I don't know if he would have. Uh, I know Malcolm Butler was the guy who picked up the pass play from Russell Wilson and made that interception that saved that Super Bowl against the Seattle Seahawks. So Malcolm Butler is a pretty smart player. You know, so you can, you can surmise that he probably would have sniffed something out. But listen, again, there were 4,000 members of the media, a lot of people covering the game on the sideline and in the booth. Nobody knew that was coming. NFL TV ratings were actually up last season after a two-year decline. Why did they go down and why did they go back up? You ever thought about that? I think they certainly went down as a result of the controversy over the national anthem. Because some have even done analysis saying that's not true. There are people that just don't believe that. But you do believe that that caused a pall over people's uh, habits of watching football. I think the NFL has research that shows that. Or else, you know, they wouldn't have done a ma- had a major deal about it. I think that was part of it. Uh, I think you had m- big injuries to major players mm-hmm. in the NFL, Aaron Rodgers being one That's of true. them. That was a big, big factor, no question about it. Um, so I think those two things conspired. I think the presidential race and presidential politics was a total eclipse of the sun. Uh, <laughs> of cable news ratings have been up. And sports ratings went down. So I think that was part of it for sure. I think it was a, a lot of different things. Uh, the number of cable subscribers is down. I think that certainly has contributed to it for sure. Uh, but now people are consuming it on different platforms. And now it's back up for a lot of different reasons. And I think the Eagles, honestly, Matt, contributed to the ratings rise. The Eagles became America's team. People love the Eagles. They were a great underdog story. One, Two, they have a lot of players, a lot. Their entire roster and their coach who does the right thing all of the time. When you have that kind of character uh, and you have the players like Foles and Wentz and Chris Long and Malcolm Jenkins and Jason Kelsey, these are players that people can attach themselves to for a lot of different reasons. So without, you know, a financed, heavily leveraged public relations campaign, the Eagles became America's team. 
Do you worry about the decline of football as a sport where moms are afraid of sending their kids to join teams in high school, the concussion issue, some people calling the sport barbaric? I think Malcolm Gladwell has used that terminology. I don't worry about it. I think the game is going to be played for another 100 years. How so? I think it's still pretty strong in many parts of the country. Uh, I like what play football is doing in terms of educating people on how to tackle properly. Uh, I think people like Merrill Hodge, my former colleague at ESPN, has done a lot of people a lot good to educate people on how to prevent concussions in youth sports, uh, youth football. Uh, I think that just by the fact that another another league, the AAF, every every couple of years you see another league sort of come uh, out of the woodwork. AFL's added a team in Atlantic City too. Yep, arena football. Yeah, yep. arena football is still pretty strong. Uh, ratings are up. Mm-hmm. Uh, participation is down in some places and up in others. Mm-hmm. Okay. Were you surprised <clears throat> by Were you surprised by how quickly the Eagles recovered from Chip Kelly as being their coach? Where and I'll remind people what happened. They let Deshaun, Deshaun Jackson go, Lashawn McCoy, Nick Foles, Jeremy Macklin. They acquired Sam Bradford, DeMarco Murray. The wreckage that took place was only two or three years before the Super Bowl victory. And I think it has to do with three things. I think uh, Doug Peterson, I think Doug Peterson is the best coach in the NFL. Uh, not, Not including Bill Belichick, of course, in his six Super Bowls. I think Doug Peterson has done a remarkable job with the Philadelphia Eagles considering all the injuries they had. He's lost in two successive years his star quarterback and managed to get to the playoffs and win a Super Bowl. He's done an amazing job as a coach. Um, And Carson Wentz has been pyrotechnic, and Nick Foles has been magic. I think it's those three things. Let's go into a bit of your background real quick. Yep. So you got a, a master's degree in broadcasting or in journalism mm-hmm. from New York University, and then yep. you joined the Navy. Yeah. Why'd you do that? You know, it was sort of preordained. Um, my uncles were all in the service. My dad was not. My dad was 4 f uh, with bad eyesight uh, since birth. So, you know, uh, I wanted to carry on my dad's leg- on my family's legacy of going into the military. And my dad couldn't serve, so I decided to serve uh, instead. And the intention was always to return and become a journalist, <laughs> write for newspapers, go on TV? No, not really. I had a somewhat successful career as a naval a surface warfare officer in the Pacific Fleet. I really enjoyed it, uh, but I, I was married, and we were living in Hawaii, and I can remember the day it happened when we were at our dining room table and the chairs were empty except me and my wife. I had just come back from sea and she said, I want some children. You either have to be, you have to have, we either have to have kids or you keep your Navy career, one of the two. Um, so you chose wisely, Sal. Yes, I, I, I think I did. I could be Admiral Sal right now. <laughs> you also, or maybe Rear Admiral. <laughs> You went and wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer. You were a political reporter yeah. to start and then uh, ventured into sports. And you wrote a book on Frank Rizzo. It's called Frank Rizzo, The Last Big Man in Yeah, The Last Big Man in Big City America. It was during his final run for mayor in nineteen ninety one, which led to his passing. He's a complicated character and nowadays we see that there is 
I don't want to call it revisionist history, but people are looking at politicians from the past in different ways now, and sometimes being very judgmental. What can you say about Rizzo's legacy, having covered that camp campaign and seeing what is happening now with the statue, people wanting it to move, et cetera? Well, I wrote the book uh, on Frank Rizzo because I really wanted to write the definitive biography, not only of him, but of the Italian-American American experience in the United States and the urban political experience in the United States. And you hit the word, Matt. His legacy is complicated. And I would just like to re read the opening quote from Robert Hughes that I have before the table of contents in the book. And Robert Hughes, of course, is a cultural historian critic uh, who many, many people know about. And the quote is, the need for absolute goodies and absolute baddies runs deep in us, but it drags history into propaganda and denies the humanity of the dead, their sins, their virtues, their failures, and their successes. So I wrote this book to try to illustrate the sins, the virtues, the failures, and the successes of a very complicated man who had a complicated history in Philadelphia. And I don't view... What people are saying about Frank Rizzo as revisionist, um, I think history is of its time, and people get to write history based on who they are within the complexities of their own time. You know, there's a lot of controversy about whether the statue should be taken down or moved, the statue of Frank Rizzo, which is in front of the Municipal Services Building. And my view is this. The Philadelphia Art Commission voted to put the statue of Frank Rizzo there. The Philadelphia Art Commission has the right to move the statue. That's my view. And they will do that based on the public discourse in Philadelphia. And so far, we've had some public discourse, and we'll have more, and they'll talk about it more, and people will get to vote, and there'll be a mayor who will make a final decision based on politics of the time, whether that statue should be moved. I don't think it should be torn down and taken down. I believe that if they want to move it, they can move it. They can move it to South Philadelphia. They can move it to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. But if you take it down and eliminate him from the conversation, then you're really doing a really bad disservice to anybody who lives here or wants to know about Philadelphia Frank Rizzo, good or bad, is an important part of this city's legacy. Absolutely. Do some people accuse you of having made an endorsement of him by simply writing a book during about that campaign? Absolutely not. This book is about this book starts in 1860s Italy. This book is about the Italian American experience. It's a biography of the politics of this city in the 20th century, going back to the Vare brothers and the old Republican machine of South Philadelphia through the transition of the 50s when you had the charter change, through the absolute chaos and violence of the 60s and 70s, and the many permutations of Frank Rizzo from street cop to motorcycle cop to commissioner to mayor to somebody who runs for office, mayor for five times he ran, five different times, finally culminating in his unlikely win 
in a raucous, riotous, absolute out-of-control primary in 1991 where 13 different candidates ran, including Sam Katz, Ron Castile, the former DA, the former governor of the state, Ed Rendell, former head of city council, the most powerful black, black politicians in the city, James White and Blackwell, and, and of course, James Burrell. So it was... Rizzo that emerged and then for him to die July 16th, 1991, at age 70, on his way to running against Ed Rendell. It's the greatest theater of all time in city politics. You know, the, the book was made into a stage play. Sure. Yeah. And the, the guy who played Frank Rizzo did such an incredible job. We're trying to revive the play, but... We can't find anybody who can do as good a job recreating the Frank Rizzo personality. I've actually thought, Matt, we ought to flip the script. We should have a black person, an African-American, play Frank Rizzo and flip the script completely around for people to get them to think about it. Sure, sure. Crazy to yeah. some, sure, but it could be incandescent. Another book you wrote is about the overrated players of the NFL. Let me ask you, who is the Eagles' most underrated player right now? Nick Foles. <laughs> <laughs> Even now. <laughs> Period, paragraph, end of sentence. Mine is Mike Mamula. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, I, I wrote it on his stats. 31 and a half sacks over 77 games. That's not bad. All right, but he was a first-round pick. I, sure, I thought he sure. didn't really live up to the expectations, unfortunately. And it's not his fault. It's not. It's the scouts. It's the people who picked him. Mike Mamula was Mike Mamula yeah, sure. when he got drafted, and he's still Mike Mamula and a great guy. Uh, a couple other bonus questions here. Do other NFL cities have a lack of respect for Eagles fans, or is it just our perception? They do, and they shouldn't. <laughs> Eagles fans are the greatest fans in the NFL. And I've written this, and I've said this, and I believe this, and it's not because I live in and I work here. It's because... Look at the NFC East, Matt. They won 12 Super Bowl trophies before the Eagles got theirs. And yet, and yet, every single Sunday, that stadium is filled with passionate fans who fork over big money for parking and for concessions and who listen to sports talk radio in this town and who watch Channel 6 and who live and breathe. It's not their team. It's their way of life. And you can't say that about too many other places. Did a piece of the Eagles' soul disappear when they knocked down Veterans Stadium and the 700 level exists only in lore now? Oh, of course, I would guess, yes, for sure. That was a pretty special, crazy place. Not only the 700 level, but the court that was in the yeah, basement. Sure. <laughs> Everyone has to mention Seamus Seamus McCaffrey. McCaffrey, yes. <laughs> went on to become a judge with the, with the state, too. Uh, how would you rank Lincoln Financial Field in terms of toughness to play in the NFL? I would say it's right up there. Uh, I've always say it's menacing. Um, teams don't like to come here. Uh, they know it's loud in Kansas City. They know it's nuts in Oakland, but they don't like to come here. You know, players will turn to me, players who visit here, and they'll say, you know, our, our bus got egged on I-95 when it was coming into the stadium. And I said, yeah. And they'll say, no, it's 2018. 
Do they still egg the buses? Yeah, we still egg the buses here. <laughs> Did the Patriots steal enough plays that it gave them the complete advantage over Super Bowl uh, 39? where they beat the Eagles and Donovan McNabb? No, Donovan McNabb threw three interceptions. If he doesn't throw three interceptions, they win that game. Remember, some of the players did say, you know, it felt like they knew the plays before we even called them. Yeah, that was right before Spygate was uncovered. But I don't, I, I, I don't know if that was a factor. I don't know if it actually happened. It's never been proven. But I'll say it again. And I said this before Super Bowl uh, 52. I said... If Nick Foles doesn't throw an interception, the Eagles will beat the Patriots. Now, in my view, the pick that he threw was not his fault in that game. If Donovan McNabb does not throw three interceptions, the Eagles would have beaten the Patriots in that game. And he doesn't get sick. Or people make too much of a big deal about that. Matt, it's about those three picks. Yeah. You can't throw three turnover, three picks. You can't have three turnovers and win the Super Bowl. You can't. You vomit it's- all you want, but don't get, cough up the football. <laughs> you said that, not me. <laughs> Two Andy Reid disciples, Doug Peterson and Ravens coach John Harbaugh, have won Super Bowls. Why is it It's something about Andy Reid that someone's trying to prevent this from happening for him? Oh, he would have won this Super Bowl if D. Ford didn't line up offsides. D. Ford, in the AFC Championship game, lines up offsides on a play that the Chiefs pick off Tom Brady. The pick is nullified. The Patriots get the ball back. I believe that Andy Reid and the Chiefs would have won. They would have beaten the Rams in that Super Bowl. I don't think the Rams were a legitimate Super Bowl team. I think the Saints should have been in that game. The Rams proved that they weren't legitimate a Super Bowl contender, in my in my view. Three points in the Super Bowl. So it's really just luck, as we were talking about. Andy Reid hasn't had that stroke of luck come that everyone else needs to have to win the big one. Well, he's had some bad coach coaching performances in the in the postseason. So we can go through them if you want to. <laughs> I mean, some and bad. I know you can. I know. Well, you we can. we had some bad ones, not only in Philadelphia but in Kansas City. He's had some bad coaching performances in the postseason that's held him back, no question. But I think in this particular year. If D. Ford does not line up offsides, the Chiefs go to the Super Bowl, the Chiefs beat the Rams. Most overrated Eagles player of all time, past or or present? Wow. Most overrated. That's, you know, I think it's kind of hard to come up with one. I I don't think that there's been any player that's been too underrated or too overrated. Because, you know, we in this town do such a good job of intelligently critiquing players real time. You know, that's the book that I wrote with Ruben Frank, who um, did a brilliant statistical analysis on just about every player that we wrote about. The bottom line is that the media will fall in love with a player to the point where they overlook their failures. I think Tony Romo is a big one. Tony Romo signed a $100 million contract that he never deserved. And I think it was basically because of his star power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brett and Far- desperation to find a quarterback. For yeah, for Cowboys. sure. Brett Favre, I thought, was very overrated. Mm-hmm. He threw a lot of That's interceptions. That's in your book. That's in the book. Uh, you know, Joe Namath, God love him, definitely overrated. The only guy in the Hall of Fame to throw more interceptions than, than touchdown passes. Yet, yet. He wore a fur coat. Yes, <laughs> and a Fu Manchu. <laughs> and white shoes. Uh, and basically ushered in the the modern 
big-time athlete, star athlete, the idea that we could take a star athlete and market shaving cream <laughs> off of him, which is a great ad, by the way. Final question. Yeah. How does one cover the Eagles team for ESPN, which is a constant, everyday job, and write books? What's the secret? I'll tell you what the secret is. <laughs> Nora Roberts, the famous romantic novelist, I, wrote a, I read a biography of her, and she was asked about what's your advice to writers, and she said three words, ass in chair. Get up in the morning, put your <laughs> rear end in the chair, don't get up until you write 2,000 words. Work for Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> yes, and a lot of other <laughs> successful writers. I'm not putting myself in their category. I'm just saying, you know, it's just a tremendous amount of discipline. It's, uh, it's that and uh, getting the permission from your family to do it. I think I got maybe a couple more books in me. I'm not sure. We'll see. We're going to read them. Thank you. Sal Palantonio. Sal Pal of ESPN. Thanks for joining us on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much to Sal Palantonio for his time. Music for this podcast by Walkabouts and Cliff Hillis. The songs were recorded in the legendary Hacienda Studio in Phoenixville. Executive producer Caroline Hayden, thank you for listening to the True Philadelphia podcast. I hope you subscribe, tell your friends, and listen to some of our earlier episodes. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Stay true, Philadelphia.